Welcome to episode 379 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. The sky comes falling down for you. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How's your armor looking? How's that feel? You putting that stuff on? I am impervious right now. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> that wasn't, not that I thought that like you were out in the world unprotected. That was, well, this is kind of getting weird. <laughs> that was not necessarily the words I was expecting to hear at the beginning of this podcast. But this is what everybody gets. Like, I, I hope that when people tune in to the Reform Brotherhood, they think these are two guys that are working entirely without a net. There's no editing that's happening here. There is no rearrangement. There's no making themselves sound better than they actually are. They just hit the record button and then they stop the record button when they say, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. It's true. It's true. Jesse and I have been talking for at least an hour now, but the topic of the podcast has come up zero times in that hour that we've been conversing before we hit the record button. Yeah. So I don't I don't know what we're gonna say tonight. Hopefully it's okay. Hopefully it's not heresy. Yeah, it's it's gonna be great. And the thing that cracks me up about what you just said is that, you know, just like sometimes, and if you've been a listener for any length of time, you can resonate with this. We sometimes, some would argue to really struggle to bring the podcast to a definitive close because there's so much great conversation. <laughs> How many times in that previous conversation that you and I just had did, did we say something like we should probably record a podcast now or it's <laughs> podcast time. And then we would completely disregard that sentiment yeah. and go on to more conversation. It's true. It's true. I think that's just a testament to the fact that we actually enjoy each other's company and we don't get to talk all that often. So when we get on a, a recorded call or a, a video call, there's all sorts of stuff we need to chat about. So Yeah, I mean, someday maybe we'll release like all the juicy it's not even like bloopers because they're not bloopers, but like the things you wish you knew we spoke about before we actually talked about the podcast, that would be its own type of podcast. So on this episode, we're continuing that whole series that we started about the armor of God. And we're going to get to the breastplate tonight. We talked about the belts last week and we kind of like teased the fact that the belt is not like the coolest piece of armor, but like a necessary one. And everything else is like building essentially upon that, being anchored to that. And we're going to talk about it. But of course, you and I both know what everybody is waiting for at this point. They, we know what they're expecting. And that is some affirmations and some denials. I'm going to flip it around. What are you denying against on this episode? So this will be re hopefully relatively short. Um, I'm denying political advertising. Let me explain the context for this. I understand that political parties need to advertise. I don't actually have a dramatic opposition to that concept. Um, right now, this is this is Saturday evening, and it's the Saturday after the New Hampshire primary. Um, and the Saturday before the New Hampshire primary, I received 15 different uh uh, pamphlets in the mail wow. begging me, uh, exhorting me, encouraging me to vote in the primary for Nikki Haley. Now, I don't know anything about Nikki Haley. I am the least invested in this in, in election that I ever have been, um, mostly because I think Trump being the nominee was pretty much always the foregone conclusion. 
and I'm not going to vote for him. So uh, it, it's pretty much like I don't care at this point. But yeah, 15 different political advertisements in my mailbox last Saturday for wow. Nikki Haley. That's a lot of advertisements. So it it's one of those things. Um, and it's weird because I don't remember it ever being that intense in New Hampshire. I know New Hampshire has the whole like first primary in the country thing. This year it was really, really intense. And like now we're going to go into a, a year of every radio ad, every television ad, every pop-up on our internet browser is going to be something about, about politics. Right. It just gets really overwhelming. And I wonder sometimes, like, does it really have to be this way? We don't vote on the issues anymore. We vote or we don't advertise on the issues anymore. I feel like I remember when I was when I was a younger guy and, and even like when I was in high school, that most of the political advertisements were like, this candidate supports this policy and this policy is good for America for this reason. And now it's like, Nikki Haley will destroy the United States. Vote for <laughs> Donald Trump. Or it's like, Donald Trump is literally the devil. Vote for. So I just feel like we don't. Uh, the, the, the dollars that are going into the political campaigns are not really there to help us understand the issues at hand. They're really just there to, it's like regular advertising, right? It's just there to like tickle our fancy or catch our attention. So I'm denying political advertising. I get that it's kind of a necessary function of the political system these days, but it just feels, it feels kind of yucky and dirty and like like sensationalized. Yeah, I get that. That's exactly what I was going to say is it feels a little bit gross on the inside. So there's this sense in which, you want to be made aware and for people to be made aware of the issues. That's a lovely thing, especially for them to reason that out. However, like big data is ubiquitous. And of course, why would we not expect anything less than like the political sphere would use all kinds of data to like target markets, try to get themselves in the front to, to persuade, to admonish. And there is like some kind of line there. We talk about like the, whatever the equivalent is in this realm of like the uncanny Valley of saying like, oh, it just kind of got gross there. Like that was a little bit too much too far. Yeah, and yeah. in a strange way, not only do I understand what you're saying, but I resonate with what you're saying because I still have a New Hampshire telephone number. So <laughs> yes, so yeah, somehow, I, of course, like as I, I, I knew the primary was approaching anyway, but I myself got all these like incredible texts uh, about like, you need to go out and vote. And I was like, oh, joke is on you because... Yeah. uh I, I do not live in that space, but I'm with you. What can we do to let me make it more about the issues? The world is complicated. And can we just say, like, before all of the, uh, at least like the United States descends into theoretically the chaos and the morass of another election, can we just say, is it not the best thing in the world that Jesus Christ is on the throne and that the superintending will of God cannot be thwarted and that his arm is strong? And so that whatever he intends and wills to happen, even in the political sphere. Like I love the psalmist saying that essentially like the nations are like dust on the scales. Like the biggest thing we conceive of in our world, on our lives that temporarily are kind of like transcendent from ourselves that feel like they could change and radically destroy or enhance everything about our lives that God himself says of that thing. It's nothing to me. And so it's great to relish in that, even as we go into this new and maybe, I guess, routine era of, of hearing all this like political discourse and this vitriol in parties and bipartisanship. And of course, it happens in every nation of the world. I'm just so thankful that Jesus is on the throne. 
Yeah. Are you ready for me to trigger the the very, very unlikely progressive person that listens to our show, as well as the more likely but still unlikely dispensationalist? Yeah, let's just do it. What's crazy to me is that Joe Biden is actually older than the nation of Israel. <laughs> and Donald Trump is not that much farther behind Joe Biden. I mean, they're both, I mean, they're both kind of like they're both old guys. So they're like, old dudes. They're and old dudes. and this is just a repeat of the last election, probably. But we're no matter who we elect, we're electing the oldest president ever in history. No matter which candidate wins the the presidency, I just feel like uh maybe that is a metaphor for something. I don't know what it is, but I'm just sick of the whole political thing. It's not even it's not even really happening in earnest yet, and I'm just ready for it to be over. Yeah, I hear that. I, I can't think that you're alone. Certainly I feel very, very similar to that. Apparently there was like a interview recently. I think it's on oh, you can find it almost anywhere videos are on the internet, but where there was somebody interviewing uh George Bush, uh not senior, but uh the junior one. And uh, he had this comment where he's like, listen, I was like president in the United States like 20 years ago. And both these dudes are older than me. I know. So you That's know. the craziest part is <laughs> it, it, even if you go back to presidents who were presidents two different presidents ago, right. they're still younger than our current our yes. current president and younger than either of the potential candidates for this next. I mean- Let's be honest, like, let's be straightforward. There's zero chance that I shouldn't say zero chance. There is almost zero chance that Donald Trump is not the candidate. This is the crazy. So here's the crazy thing. I just came to this realization. When we started the podcast, we were talking about, I think it was like episode three was like, should we potentially vote for Donald Trump? Yeah. Like our entire podcast has existed in this weird world where Donald Trump is a real political force. Right. And I, I don't want to like, I don't want to get into it. Like you and I have both been transparent that we don't feel comfortable with Donald Trump. We don't feel comfortable right. associating our names with them. We both wrote in the same candidate in the last two uh, presidential elections. Who's not even, he's not even in politics anymore, but like this has been such a feature in the world for the last, I don't, it feels like a hundred years, but it's probably only been like eight years. It's just a weird world that we live in politically and sociologically and economically. It's just a weird world. So I'm just sick. I got a lot of text messages over the last month that claim to be coming from Nikki Haley. And I feel like Nikki Haley probably is not text messaging me. If Nikki Haley actually is text messaging me, then maybe we should get her on the show because I feel like that could be an interesting conversation. Very but interesting. I don't think that it actually is Nikki Haley that's text messaging me. So listen, I don't know. She texted me as well. It's crazy. It was really crazy is I don't have a New Hampshire telephone number. So I don't know why they're texting me about the New Hampshire primary. Oh, they know. They know. It's big business. They know. <laughs> big business. <laughs> it's like big milk, big shoes. Yes. I mean, all the establishments that we routinely take on on this true. podcast. True. Big we are the number one uh, big big business, anti-big business podcast in the country. I'm making stuff up now. Jesse, please save me. What are you What are you denying today? I'll keep it quick because I think this is kind of like an oldie but a goodie, but I was recently reminded of this. Is it coconut so, oil on popcorn? No, 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 but it is food. Both everything they're going to hear from me today, denial and affirmation, straight food. So uh, here's the food denial. 
I was trying to think of something that could like more quintessentially, especially in the realm of food, but I would, I would stack this up against like any observation of the fall where we could say the fall is real. Total depravity is a real quantity in our world. And here's the place where I arrived yet again. And that is like, we know that God uses in, in almost all the ways, like these ordinary means that, that is exactly his jam. And the scriptures, we know that like there are particular ordinary means that he comes back to. So for instance, we know that our God is into tents. I'm totally down with that. He is into uh, rest. I'm also totally down with that. These are simple principles. He's down with, when we talk about some physical elements, water, for instance, wine, and then there's bread. Here's how I know that like the, the world has been totally compromised, how like the taking of a good thing in the compromise of giving ourselves over to sin, of trading like the truth for a lie is a real thing because we know that God has a thing for bread. And yet there's so many people in this world, including myself, who have things that are like gluten sensitivities. Yeah. How can these things coexist? If not, what we find is that total depravity is a real thing. So I was in this space again today. And uh, to the fact of like, I've had the, maybe somebody's going to call me out here and that's fine. I will, I welcome your emails. You can email us at info from brotherhood.com. I have done all of like the genetic testing. Somebody in my family has like the gluten sensitivity gene. Um, I'm looking at you, mom. And so because <laughs> of that, uh, there's like a, it's a real thing. Like it's not like a made up thing. It's not like, oh, I, my tummy aches a little bit afterwards. Like, like it's a real thing. This just proves to me that like there is a world in which God created and it was good. And then we messed it up. And by rebelling against God, there is this real sense. I guess not even a sense. The reality is that everything has been compromised, deteriorated. And just the fact that God has in a way a special place for bread. And yet that bread for many people cannot be consumed in the state in which like we think of bread. We can argue about like, fermentation of bread and what the Israelites did, like all that stuff present and also aside, I still think it proves the point that we all long for a day. Part of the groaning of creation is like the gluten-free groaning of creation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That like for people to participate in the supper without asking, wait, is this gluten-free? That's what I'm saying. Like that's, that's going to be the beauty of the marriage supper of the lamb. Yeah. I mean, Maybe to take it out of the gluten sensitivity realm because people, for whatever reason, that's like a controversial topic sometimes. It is. Um, like peanuts and like almonds, those things are great, but like they'll also kill some people. So yeah. like it's not just like gluten sensitivity that's that true. proves this point. Like there are all sorts of things that are amazing. Like I love peanut butter. Honestly, like one of my favorite breakfast foods is just like toast just slathered in like jiffy peanut butter. It's terrible for you. What was that? Is that toast gluten-free? No, like extra gluten, please. Can I get extra gluten? Just whatever gluten is, can you just put more of it in my bread for me? <laughs> I love peanut butter toast. It's like one of my favorite breakfast meals, but yeah. that literally will straight up kill some people. That's fair. Um, and we're not talking about like bee stings, which nobody likes a bee sting. Right, We're talking exactly. about like peanuts exactly. and almonds and like really good food. Um, like lactose intolerance is a real thing. Yes. Milk is great. I love milk. I love cheese. Some people, it just does nasty stuff to their insides. Yes. 
Agreed. And this is just dem- a demonstration that the fall is real. Like God's created all these different things that are good and they're enjoyable. Like we've talked about that before. Like food doesn't have to taste good. God could have created a world in which we get nourishment for something from something that is basically just like a tasteless paste. We just put it in our mouth and it nourishes us right. and there's no enjoyment to it. But he didn't. He created a world where like we can cook food. I saw a funny meme the other day. It made me think of this. We like it was uh, basically like the first guy who thought of bread was like, let's cook it again. Like the first guy who thought like, let's let's cook this bread a second time and see what yeah. happens. And it's amazing. Like who doesn't love a good piece of toast? Exactly. And this is like the craziest thing. Take a piece of toast, put butter on. It. It's like the most plain thing in the world. But there's not much more that's uh, as simply delightful fun. as a good piece of toast plain with just butter on it. Yes. But that also will really mess some people up (laughs) because the world has fallen. And, and I think that just demonstrates the point you're making. Yeah. I'm all about that. Yeah. And and in particular, like when we speak about bread, that that's something, if I can say it this way, that God has like elevated, so to speak, or use use representatively. And the fact that that could be in some ways so problematic or challenging to people is, is an amazing irony. And this is not to discredit God. It's merely to say it illustrates the point that, uh, he's not frustrated in this. It's merely an example of how all creation is, in fact, groaning for this amazing redemption. It happens at the smallest level and the largest level. Let me just apologize for something that I just did. And that was when you talked about the peanut butter thing, I threw my head back and laughed because I was like, yeah, peanuts are delicious. I didn't expect you to go there. And then you were like, they will kill somebody while I'm laughing hysterically. So um, certainly I think the I audience knows. I think they understand. Yeah, I understand. Like that, that can be a serious thing. And again, I think that proves the point. It's like, how could something like that God has given us to like nourish our bodies, to be delicious, yeah. to have like nutritional properties, how could that thing be so poisonous as to cause like almost immediate death for those who are impacted by it yeah. and to be impacted by it at like a genetic level? Like what has happened yeah. such that like that could occur in certain people? It is in fact the fall. So like what it means to be redeemed like spiritually, which we experience now, is to see and have this foretaste of what it means to be redeemed physically so that like you can eat what you want and not be concerned about how it might affect your body or might poison you because the things that you're wanting to eat are in fact good things that God has in fact created yeah. for you to eat. So yes, I, I'm just saying like, uh, I think I've come back this several times, but I was just thinking about this again where you know the Lord's Supper and bread mainly because uh, my wife is in deep preparation for a women's event at our church, uh, what they're calling Galentine's Day, which is not an uncommon name, and uh, it's all about like waffles and and she was d- kind of experimenting on these GF recipes because she herself is GF and I'm mostly GF. Well, I should be GF, but I make my own bad decisions, and so like just the fact like you have to worry about like oh why are these why are these like not rising as much (laughs) why are these not getting crispy like it's like a waffle is supposed to be a waffle by its definition and the fact that like you have to make us a poor substitute because there are some people that just cannot consume it in the way that it was one could argue made to be consumed is like a whole nother thing so now you got to save me tony what let's get some positivity in all of this what are you affirming with yeah, I'll I'll um I'll make this quick, although this could be a, a pretty in-depth, deeply theological topic. I'm affirming what I call toddler problem solving skills. And this is like a broad array of things. So so August, uh August Jesse Arsenal, my son, is twenty almost twenty-two months old, twenty-three months old. 
And um, there are there's problem solving skills, and then there's toddler problem solving skills. So, like, what I mean by this is, toddlers have this amazing ability to not only um, problem solve things. So, like, one of the one of the most common things is like if you block off an area for a toddler and they want to get in there, they will almost always invariably find some creative way to get past it. But what's even more impressive is because they don't have sort of this like preconceived set of guidelines and restrictions, they will find ways to accomplish tasks and accomplish things they're trying to do that are totally outside of the uh, the normal boundaries of things. So here's the example I'll give, and then and then we don't need to talk about it anymore because it's just pretty. It's just a cool thing that that God has wired into us at that age in our life. My son, if I set, so I have a guitar downstairs in the church sanctuary. We live in the building of the church. And frequently when we go downstairs into the church and play, I will take the guitar and I'll set it on the chair because I don't want him to knock it off the the rail and break it. He will find things to use to play that guitar in creative ways. It's like he will (laughs) frequently take, we have these umbrellas. He'll frequently take these umbrellas and he will bring them over to the guitar. And it's very clear that he understands and can tell that the strings make a different sound when he pushes the umbrella up against it than when, for example, he takes one of the Bibles that are are scattered about in the sanctuary and draws it across the strings. He's actually learned to take like certain elements or certain items in the, the sanctuary and use them almost like a steel guitar. Like he... Yeah he will draw them across the string in a way that is more like a steel guitar than a traditional guitar because he likes the way that sounds. And he's just developed this understanding of how this instrument works. I would never think to use the handle of an umbrella as a way to play this guitar, but he really likes that sound. He's developed a way to do it. And there's something in there we won't get into it because like, we've got a whole topic we want to talk about that's not just my toddler playing guitar with an umbrella, but there's something about it that I think is tied into like what it means to have faith like a child, where it's like, you don't have all these preconceived notions of what right. the scriptures mean and what the Bible means. Like you trust God for who he is and you, you are open to the way that he has created the world in a way that I think adults just aren't. So I I'm just in awe sometimes of his problem solving skills, the way he figures things out the way he sort of like almost like improvises different tools to sort of make things happen the way he wants to. It's just very, very interesting. So I don't know. It, it's being the dad of a toddler is really great because there it's just this like entire world of discovery for him. Everything is new and everything's amazing. And he puts together things in ways that I would never think of because everything is new to him. So there's no like, there's no saying to him because he just isn't there. You don't play the guitar with the handle of an umbrella. Right. Right. Why not though? Like I suppose some of the greatest musicians in the world have been like, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to play this guitar with an umbrella handle. And that's a new way of playing it. But like, that's just the most natural thing for him. He's got this thing and it sounds cool and he likes it. So he does it every time we go down there, he does the exact same thing. And I would never think to do it that way. So I'm just affirming that God has wired our brains in a way where, especially at that age, like everything is new and everything is amazing. And I feel like I'd like to capture that a little bit in my life. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling, but it's just a cool, cool thought. 
I think that's a fair observation. This idea that, like, for him, there's no like inhibitions with stuff. Like, there's no preconceived notions. Yeah. So, there's no right way or acceptable way to do this. And I, I think I take your point that when we we understand God saying you need to have this faith like a child, it's like for him in this instance, he's just taking things as they come. He's taking right. things as they are, and just trusting them. Like, I can make the sound with this thing, or like to your point, if it's blocked off. If I just get the umbrella, I can reach it with this right. thing and I can make this sound. And that's lovely and different and unique. So I think that preaches in its own way. Like what what does it mean for as us as adults to take God exactly as he presents himself to be? That is like to trust him and to take him at his word fully and unreservedly. That's like a serious challenge because we mostly want to reason it out or say, this is how it ought to be, Lord, or I, I need to understand certain things. And that's not really the example of faith that God gives us. And I think that's a challenge to us all. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I don't have anything to add to that. So Jesse, why don't you head into uh, your affirmation? I'm interested to hear what you've got. Yeah. Okay. Real quick, because let's get to the good stuff. We need that breastplate of righteousness. So uh, it's another food affirmation. I think I've said this before. I live in the land, at least currently, of cheesesteaks. And I'm just affirming cheesesteaks in part because most of the time a cheesesteak is delicious steak, shaved steak on a griddle, cooked crispy with some kind of melted cheese on a roll, which I probably should not eat. But will I eat it? Yes, I will. Because even though it has gluten, I will suffer the consequences. So if you can, no matter where you were in the world, I think like the Philly cheesesteak, probably someplace serves that. I think you should just go out and try it. Maybe you're the kind of person that's saying, I love that. And I say to you, yes, brother and sister. Yes, you do. So if you haven't had one, go ahead and try one. I, I would caution you against like, maybe you live in the world that tries to reverse that order. Like, oh, I'm going to go out and get a steak and cheese. I, I think you've gravely misunderstood me. Go out and get a Philly cheese steak. There's a reason why the cheese precedes <laughs> the steak. So, and if you ever find yourself in Pennsylvania, you should definitely just go and find the cheesesteak. Ask somebody. It's like commonplace here. You don't need to know anybody. They will not smile at you. They will not say hello. But if you're on the street and you pass somebody, say, excuse me, sir, ma'am, where can I get a cheesesteak? Oh, they will gladly tell you. Their face will light up. Their countenance will change and become joyful and amicable. And they will tell you where to find one. So, you should just definitely go and do that. But there's like a couple of universal pairings. You already talked about like peanut butter, peanut butter and jelly, like toast, like really nice bread and butter. I think the cheese steak, no matter what culture you're in, has some kind of equivalent of that. So let's just all lean into it, loved ones. And while we're on this temporal globe, let's just enjoy the blessing that is delicious dairy melted on delicious shaved meat. There's a part of me that wants to make like an Old Testament Jewish legal law that like that's not kosher it is for freedom yeah that we have been set free it's funny i had a i had a, a professor in college who would frequently say that uh, the reason we eat ham on easter is to celebrate that we're not jewish <laughs> and although that's a little bit flippant it's actually probably not that far off from reality yeah, like there's certain things that like this is not meant to be like an anti-Jewish sentiment, but like I get to enjoy bacon. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about was this cheese steak cooked in its mother's milk? Like that's not a thing right. we have to worry about. And no one needs to worry about that in Christ. So yeah, I'm now I'm hungry. It's like 
eight thirty at night and I'm trying to figure out where I can get a cheese. Yeah, there's listen, there's there's no uh bad time though. Cheesesteak. I don't think I said this before in our conversation, at least recorded. So let me say this one last thing about this topic, and that is uh I so my my wife's sister, her husband, some would say that's not my brother in law, and I understand that's slightly slightly derivative. However, they live in California. They occasionally come out to where we live in South Central Pennsylvania. And the, I think it was like maybe two or three years ago, he discovered the cheesesteak. It turns out he's a big fan of the cheese and also a big fan of the steak. Every time now he's here, this man who is a, of a slight build eats the most cheesesteak. <laughs> like, there are times I have to be like, Alfred, I think you should back down. Like, I'll be like, where are you going for lunch today? And he's like, you know where I'm going. <laughs> like, it's been three times already. You're only going to be here like seven days. That's too much cheesesteak. And uh, can't stop, won't stop. So he walks out of there looking is... like Eddie Murphy and the Nutty Professor. He's like, he's <laughs> all like blown up, like the clumps. He's he's a beast. What's funny is um, he discovered that they're like increasing level. Like there's a taxonomy of cheesesteaks. So like, I remember he was here a couple of years ago. He went once and he was like, I got the cheesesteak was amazing. I was like, that's great. I'm so happy for you. I came back from work the next day and he was like. So I got the cheesesteak again. He's like, do you know they will put peppers on it? And I was like, yeah, that's like a totally normal thing. Two days later, I came back and he was like, I have to admit, I went to the cheesesteak place again. I just want to confess to you. And I was like, I mean, that's fine. There's no judgment here. And he's like, also, they will also put mushrooms on it in addition to all their stuff. And, and then he's like, you can get a side of just the cheese and you know you can dip whatever you want in that, like the fries. And I was like, yeah, man, like just go crazy. So uh, it's an amazing thing. So I, I have to think that like the cheesesteak in some ways of like the temporal world in which we like come to this place of understanding that, of course, like this, what's spiritual, what is temporal is fused together is in fact really the armor of God. Like that is the cheesesteak. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Because like the armor of God really makes all of our lives better. It makes all of our spiritual condition better. It makes all our appreciation of who God is and what God has done for us better. That's what exactly what cheese does to uh, essentially any food that's savory. And so we're hanging out in Ephesians 6. I understand that I didn't ask for anybody's permission to make that segue. It's our podcast. So that might I be the worst, the worst segue in Reformed <laughs> Brotherhood history. Normally we just we just let it go. I don't know that I can let that one go. That might be the worst one we've ever had, but it's let it's it fine. It's all good. Let it happen. Let it happen. It's great. It's great. So we're hanging out in Ephesians 6. If you know something about the scriptures, you know that Paul has written this great letter to the church in Ephesus. And in chapter 6, or at least this chapter 6, we know it, and it's been demarcated for us. He starts enumerating these various pieces of the armor. So I want to be fair to the scripture. And I think, of course, that's always the great place to start. And so let us take a look at basically verses 10 through 14. Some of this is cumulative. You're going to hear that we've talked about this before, but that's the beauty of this. He's creating this argument that starts with cumulative pieces. So beginning in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, 
and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So here we are. This is really the second piece of this so-called armor. You know, we kind of talked a little bit about a belt doesn't seem quite like armor. It's like the underemphasized armor. It's the normal means which really secures everything. But it's interesting that we start with this massive piece of protection that in many ways is all about covering the vital organs of the person. And it's labeled for us as righteousness. So let's get after it. Let's talk about what that means. Yeah, I think the first, you know, we've kind of alluded to this, um, maybe alluded is not strong enough of a term. We've referenced this idea in the past um, couple episodes that really for the Christian, the armor of God is not distinct from Christ. So when we put on the armor of God, that really is just another way for us to say that we put on Christ. And it may not be fully accurate to say that like Christ is God's armor. That's, that's not like a logical conclusion of what we're saying, but even just linguistically, um, if you look, were to look up in Lagos Bible software, for example, the phrase put on and ask in the Bible where the phrase put on appears, you're going to come to Romans 13, 14, and you're going to come to Galatians three twenty seven. Romans says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Galatians says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And this Greek word here for put on that is used by Paul elsewhere in the scriptures is clearly related to putting on Christ, clothing yourself in Christ, being united to Christ. And so although it's it's a little bit um, potentially dangerous to just do like a one-to-one word association, because this word also appears in, in ordinary circumstances like putting on a shirt or putting on a tunic or whatever. Right. It's no um, mere coincidence that this idea of putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that this same word is used in reference to putting on Christ in those very classic kind of union with Christ passages. And this is, this is really like the centerpiece, although it's not in the center of the armor of God, it's the centerpiece of the armor of God, in my opinion is that although we have all these other pieces that are put on, I think the breastplate of righteousness is the central feature of the armor of God, right? Just like in, if you think about like the way that armor is set up in, you think of like any mythological or fantasy literature kind of situation, like the breastplate plate is like the most significant part of the armor because it protects your heart, it protects your internal organs, it protects your lungs, um, if you get shot in the heart or the lungs with an arrow, like you're going to die. So the breastplate covers all your vital things. And it really is, um, it really is this righteousness that is put on. And right. as Protestants, as especially as reformed Protestants, although our Lutheran brothers and sisters would not disagree with us in any, any significant sense, the righteousness that we put on is not some, um, it's external to us, right? It's not righteousness that inheres in us, but it's not as though there's righteousness that Christ gives us. Christ is our righteousness. So the the first thing to land in this passage is that we're not putting on some 
some benefit that Christ gives us separate from his person or separate from union with him. But it is actually union with him that we are putting on, and that is the breastplate of righteousness. If that's the only thing you take away from this is that somehow Christ and his union with us protects us from what it is that the devil wants to do, that's the whole point of this passage, that Christ is our guarantee and our protection against the uh, forces of evil, against the things that Satan wants to undermine in, in God's people. Yeah, in many ways, if you're asking like, well, what does it mean to put on Christ? It's lovely that Paul essentially uses all this like analogical language to say, this is what it looks like. And it gives us all these pieces of armor that in many ways are just characteristics of God, especially of Christ, our Savior and our Messiah. So I think what we see right off the bat here with this particular one is that, it's your point, we're putting on something that's like... It, like the scene here for me, and this may be unfair, but this is the way I often think about it, is like juxtaposed with David putting on like this ill-fitting armor of Saul, yeah, which yeah. Saul is like a poor redeemer. He's he's a really poor type of Christ. And even in trying to equip David to go out and fight Goliath, who is, of course, a representation of the evil one, that David basically forsakes all of that and receives the armor of Christ, which is the blessing and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit rushing upon him. And so Paul is kind of using, again, this intellectual language to like bring out all these individual aspects to help us to tease us into trying to understand and to meditate on these unique characteristics. And then to help us, I think, appreciate with courage and bravery that they are part and parcel of the Christian, that when the Christian is in Christ, he puts on Christ. And what does it mean to put on Christ? It is, for instance, and then what we're talking about now, now to wear this blessed praise of righteousness. I think, and I'm with you, although like, I'll just ask the question. I'm curious for your opinion. We haven't talked about this. It wasn't part of the hour long dialogue we had before we started recording. So commentators do disagree as to like, whether like the righteousness in view here is that imputed righteousness of yeah. Christ by which we're justified that like, like second Corinthians five or the ethical righteousness that we practice. And so like reveal our genial or authentic faith to the world. That would be kind of like James 2 style. To my mind, what I see here is that this is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's saying that what Christ has won for us, the armor essentially that he's created and forged, he is giving to you, actually placing upon you and over your head and saying, this you ought to put on. This is what it means to be part and parcel of the family of God. So to me, it's more about that imputed righteousness. Although I get the point, of course, that when you are embodying, wearing that imputed righteousness, there's an example in that way. But to me here, what Paul is saying is put on the armor that you did not form yourself and that this, that, that is why it's so powerful to protect you. The righteousness that you desire, the wanting to be right, of course, before God, the proof that in fact you are before God, the identity, the labeling, so that like when you're among the soldiers of God, you all, as it were, look the same or wearing the same uniform. The thing that's going to stand out is the thing that you're wearing on your chest. And that chest is the righteousness yeah. that comes from God that is unique and part and parcel to his peer, to His people. So I'm, I'm guessing you feel probably the same way based on what you said. But what do you feel about like that distinction? Yeah, I think um, if I was forced to choose between the two, I would be right with you that you know, if if we have to look at this and say either this is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, or this is the righteousness that 
God rots in us or through right. us. Uh, I would obvious. I think I would obviously go with the righteousness that Christ imputes to us, which is just to say that Christ Himself is imputed to us. Um, but I don't know that it's an either or, and I think this is one of those of areas where, like, I think a lot of Reformed Christians, um, and I hope I'm not being pejorative or dismissive, but there are a lot of Reformed Christians that I think are just really confused about the role of sanctification and and who it is that sanctifies us. Um, And sometimes the question comes up of like, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? And I'm almost feeling like those are category errors. I think the consistent testimony of the reformed understanding of scripture, the reformed testimony in reference to sanctification is that God is the one who sanctifies. And so although we don't, um, we are not passive in the process of sanctification in the same way we are passive in the process of or in the act of justification. We don't contribute to our own sanctification. So we operate right. in sanctification. We work through sanctification. But ultimately, sanctification is God's work applied to us. And it's it's by faith alone that we are sanctified, even though we are working in the midst of and out of our sanctification our works do not contribute to our sanctification. And I think this is one of those areas where we can talk about righteousness that is imputed to us. And then we can talk about righteousness as we actually, as Christians walk according to the law in ideally. And I think in most cases in increasing fashion, right? We, we grow and we make progress in the faith. And that is the ordinary and anticipated experience of the Christian. Um, of course, there are setbacks. There are some people, and I would not say that a person who is not experiencing progress in righteousness um, is necessarily not a Christian or necessarily has a reason to doubt their salvation, but it is a cause for concern, right? So I think in this case, it's not an either or. It's a both and, right? We both have the breastplate of righteousness righteousness in that Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. But also the breastplate of righteousness is the reality that Christ's grace is infused into us. And that infusion of grace causes us to move forward and to progress in the faith. And before anybody thinks that, and, and it's funny, this I always think about the time that you said grace gets injected into us. <laughs> but the reality is this is actually good reformed language. And, and this, yeah, is, right. this right. is where I think we, we need to understand it. So this is question... 77 of the Westminster Larger Catechism it says, wherein does justification and sanctification differ? And the answer is, although sanctification is inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ in that God in justification imputes the righteousness of Christ and in sanctification, his spirit infuses grace and enables the exercise thereof. In the former sin is pardoned, in the other it is subdued, and the one is equally free to all believers from the revenging wrath of God and perfectly in this life. In the other, it is neither equal in all nor in this like perfect in any, but growing up into perfection. So sometimes in our zeal, uh, and I, when I say our, I mean like reformed Christians, sometimes in our zeal to defend justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and to articulate an idea of in imputed righteousness, 
we fail to recognize that God also infuses grace into us. And the infusion of that grace leads to an increasing exactly. righteousness that is actually our own, right? Right. There's there's this righteousness that the Lutherans are going to love when I say this. There's this righteousness extra nos, right? There's this righteousness right. that is outside of us. It's an alien righteousness that is imputed to us. But that does not contradict the idea that there is a righteousness that God rots in us that then works itself out into the world. It works itself out in real actions. And I think the breastplate of righteousness encompasses both of those realities for us. And we have to understand, like, what is the progenitor of that? And I think that's like the emphasis of this kind of dialogue. That is to say, one could say, well, listen, God has given us righteousness through Christ. That is, he's drawn a straight line. There's been reconciliation. There's been a rightness of conduct in our lives and activities that bring it, everything into harmony with who God is and his character. And so out of that, we we're over the anvil and we're not necessarily manufacturing, of course, but the Holy Spirit is helping us rot this piece of armor and then we put it on. And my point is simply that we have all those other things. Like you're saying, we have this sanctification because first we are donned with this armor. So like the armor must proceed anything that we manifest. In other words, we are righteous. We undertake righteous behavior because first we are wearing that breastplate of righteousness. It both identifies us as one of Christ's own and his soldiers, but also protects us fully and completely because its power and authority comes from Christ and not from us. So we don't add anything to it. We merely wear it and hopefully wear it well and by it being given to us, this is in some ways, I suppose, like the argument for regeneration, that the regenerated person, the regenerated soul, the heart that has literally been transformed from stone to flesh does, in fact, exhibit these behaviors. But now outside of this first effort, the first yes. crowning, the first being equipped. And so that equipment comes from Christ. He's the one that actually manufactured it. And we, by ourselves, are always contingent beings in that way that we can receive it and we do receive it when Christ changes us, of course. And so by nature of that, everything else comes subsequent. And that's honestly, as we've talked about it, I think over time, that's almost been my own journey of understanding sanctification. That is there a part that we play? Sure, of course. I mean, Paul says that for himself in Philippians, working out our salvation as Christ wills and works within us. At the same time that we know that like the progenitor of that, like the energy as it were, the effort the first principle, the first domino to fall, all of that is God himself, yeah. Christ yeah. Jesus securing it and the Holy Spirit applying it. So I agree with you. Like it is both, but it's kind of like, well, you can't have the second without the first. Right. And really that second is derivative of the first. And again, to have this piece, I think like as we go through this, one of the things we ought to note is just a particular labeling. Of course, like we can talk about, and it's there's so much ink and time has been spilled over talking about the various pieces of armor and what it means to have like Roman weaponry and Roman protection. All that stuff, of course, is in play here. I think where maybe we can add to that, if we can, in some humble way, is talking about like, well, why the label? Why righteousness on the breastplate? Like, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, some of that you've kind of already talked about, but like, why of all things? It could be truth. It could be confidence and faith in Christ. Why do you think Paul draws out righteousness and like uniquely and specifically attaches it to this piece of armor? Yeah. And I think um, this is part of it is why linguistically the, the passage is phrased the way it is, right? 
So linguistically, this could have been um, a righteous, a breastplate that is itself righteous, right? An adjective description. But the actual grammar of the text here is it's not that um, the breastplate is described as righteous. It's that righteousness itself is the breastplate. Mm. And so it's it's a noun construction where it's it's not um, it's not like this is a righteous breastplate that you you wear. It's that righteousness as a breastplate is what you put on. And right. I think I think the feature of this is that righteousness, um, both in the idea of a legal proper standing with God, but then also in this ethical sense that sort of this secondary um, or dependent, I shouldn't say secondary, but like this consequential, um, sense of the actual righteousness that we walk in every day. That is the central feature of the Christian life. And I think there are probably some like free grace people that are losing their minds right now. But when you think about it, if justification is the article on which the the Christian faith rises and falls, right? Or as right. Calvin puts it, it's the hinge that opens the door to salvation. If justification is the central feature of what it means, what what the Christian faith is over and against other religions, if Protestantism depends on justification by faith alone or through faith alone over and against Roman Catholicism, for example, well, justification is all tied up in righteousness. And so it's not, um, it's not, accurate to say that like justification is a secondary thought. It's, it's the primary right. thing. It's not the only thing. That's where I think some of the young restless reform movement went wrong is that justification became the only thing that was considered and the only thing that marked us. It's the most important, one of the most important things, but it's not the only thing, but justification is what guards and preserves the Christian life just like a um let let me put it this way when you talk about um when you talk about confessional understanding and you t- start to talk about like federal vision for example one of the questions that they'll ask if they're comparing a theology to confessional understanding is if it strikes at the vitals of the body of doctrine well that's not accidental language right and the breastplate is what covers the vital organs of the human body Right? right. This is the most important part. It's the reason that like when the SWAT team goes in, they're not wearing full comprehensive body armor because they couldn't move if they did that. But they're wearing tactical vests that cover their heart, that cover their stomachs, that cover their lungs, that cover the internal organs in the mid part of their body. That's what ju- that's what righteousness does for us. It covers us, particularly in the most vital areas of the Christian life. Right. So if we lose the concept of justification, if we lose the concept of Christ's imputed righteousness to us, that strikes at the vitals of Christian religion to sort of borrow that confessional, that confessional, I don't know, heuristic language. It strikes at the vitals and therefore the the, the righteousness that is, is Christ that is imputed to us, Christ's that is imputed to us. It covers our vital organs and our vital spiritual organs. So I think that's why it's associated with the breastplate is because the breastplate covers and protects the stuff that will kill you if you get struck there. Right. Right. We'll talk about like the helmet of salvation. That's another thing that covers something that if you get hit there hard enough, you're going to die versus like the shoes, right? Shoes, belt, the shield. Those things are important defensive things, important parts of the armor. But if someone stabs me in the foot, I'm probably not going to die. 
at least not like uh, not like by way of necessity. But if someone stabs me in the heart, I'm probably going to die by way of necessity in a different way than like if I get stabbed in the foot, yeah, it's going to make it harder to fight in the battle. All that stuff we'll talk about. But covering um, justification, righteousness, all of these things, um, if I lose that, if that's not there, if that's not in place, none of the other armor really matters, right? If I go into battle uh, with with a good belt and a good shield and like good shoes, all of this stuff, a good helmet, but I'm not wearing anything to cover my heart and my lungs, then I might as well not be wearing the other things as well. And I think that's kind of where this comes in here is that the breastplate is the most significant, vital part of the armor, just like righteousness, Christ, both. And this is where I think maybe I'll, I'll say something a little bit controversial, both the imputed righteousness of Christ and also the infused grace, which leads us to a real worked out, lived out ethical righteousness that is inherently or in, it, not intrinsically, but inherently ours, that the spirit has actually wrought in us. Both of those things are vital to the Christian faith. Right. And this, you know, I, I've said this before, like the most controversial thing, the first thing we ever said that got, got us in any sort of hot water was when we said that like the Christian life is a life of doing hard, working harder, doing better and trying more, not for salvation, not for obtaining salvation, but for working out our salvation as a result right. of our salvation. And if you lose either one of those, you really have lost the Christian faith entirely. Right. I th- I think you said a, a, a verb in there that was like particularly important and it's like a theme throughout both the Old and New Testament. And that is like this idea that God covers. I find that really profound that anyone when we're talking about this armor that he's covering the places that are exposed, covering the vulnerable spaces, covering and protecting. And from like Genesis 3 onward, that's what God does for his children. He covers, he protects, he makes a way. So you're right in that this breastplate is first is emblematic of our justification to be made not only right with God, but to be protected from God. And then almost an irony to be protected from God's enemies. It's a type of double protection as it were. Yeah. And in each sense, what we find is that this armor is like the critical garb of the Christian. So like we're going to proclaim that God has justified us if he saved us. And that therefore nothing can condemn us. Nothing can ever actually be against us. That Christ's work for us is finished in us. And that because of that, we are safe in the midst of the world. We're safe from all things that could befall befall us spiritually, including even physical things like death itself. That covering happens because God has equipped us. And I think I'm with you that that covering is best manifest as understanding what it means to be right with God. If you cannot be right with God, then everything else is lesser to that point. Yeah. So to have this massive piece of armor that is on your person that covers and protects, covers and protects you from God, identifies you as with God and no longer at enmity or the enemy of God. And then as a result of that, then identifies you as an enemy of the devil, but provides you with protection against him as well. Then this is the best of all possible places to be. How lovely it is. I'm thinking about this just now as we're talking that like our God gives us stuff that equips us to move forward with like indicative and imperative. That this is literally like God saying, I've called you to walk worthy of the manner to which you've been called. 
And as a result of that, I do not leave you on your own in the valley of death or anywhere else, as you know, like the Pilgrim Christian would say, but that you have been given the necessary tools so to persevere. But like to your point, Tony, the soldier who goes out, who's been given the armor, still must go out to the battle line, still must draw the sword, yes. still must move forward with courage and with bravery, knowing and trusting that the armor, which they in fact bear, and which has been fashioned for them, not of their own hand, is actually trustworthy. And so there is, maybe all this armor is about putting on Christ and then allowing Christ to sanctify you and allowing him to will and to work in your life as you, in fact, move forward with him. And so it strikes me that this is like the first piece of the armor because you're going to go out to the battle, hopefully, with your chest raised high, with your head looking up, moving forward with great confidence. And your chest is the largest target of your body, presumably. Like the head is yeah, important, yeah. but it is much smaller. Anybody who's played like 007 knows this. It's much smaller then that's like a deep cut right there. It's yeah, much Jesse smaller. just demonstrated <laughs> his utter lack of knowledge of modern video gaming, which I love everything about that. Sorry that's to interrupt like your point. You were really on a roll there. I just couldn't mess it up. No, that's like the class. That's the class. The OG it's totally true. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But like anybody who knows to play like a game where it's like, I mean, if there's a, I mean, excuse, excuse the expression, like a headshot, like yeah. the, the, the chest is the place. It's the largest you know, surface area of the body. So like, there's so much here that's interesting that Christ says like, this is the place, the start of where justification takes place and where you are safe and protected. And I I think uh, like, I'm totally with you. Like this is, I think the language that's being used here for righteousness to be right with God is to be justified. I mean, there is no better, there is no better synonym for that. And so what we're finding is, is like put on this breastplate of righteousness, which is the justification of God in Christ. And it just draws me back to Romans and saying like, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How do we know this? Because they're equipped with that breastplate. Like it's just like full stop. Yeah. So I, I guess that should fire us up. Like the only thing that equips you better than just running through a wall is to run through a wall with some armor on, right? Like to be protected in that. Yeah. To go like chest first through it. And what we find is that it's just amazing that the God that we serve is one that doesn't just say, I love you and isn't that great and good luck in the world. And I'll meet you on the other side of glorification. Right. But he says, right "Right now, I'm going to equip you with some armor that has been wrought by Jesus Christ, that is fully empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit so that you might move forward in your sanctification, even as he wills and works that sanctification in you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place for us to put a pin in it for, uh, for the time being, these themes are going to come back up again and again throughout this series. And I think, like I said, really all of these different things that we're putting on in the armor of God in, in these various different pieces really are just ways to talk about, putting on what it is that God has granted us in Christ. So this week's discussion, last week's discussion, next week's discussion, it's all going to circulate around what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be um, hidden in Christ on high, right? Like our life is hidden in Christ. We're not, we're not our own. Um, In order for the devil to overcome us, he would have to overcome Christ himself, right? We're more than conquerors in Christ. So I think this is as good a place for us to 
pause the conversation until next week. If you want to continue having the conversation, uh, we do have a Telegram chat. You can join. If you go to, to t.me slash Reform Brotherhood, you can join our Telegram chat. You can suggest topics. There's all sorts of great people in there that are talking about different theological issues, asking for prayer requests and praying for each other. Um, lots of funny memes, lots of good conversation about all sorts of stuff going on. Um, again, that's t.me slash Reform Brotherhood. And if you're looking for a way to get involved in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Reform Brotherhood. Um, we've got a good group of people who support the show. And honestly, we couldn't do the show the way it is without the support of people who listen. So if you are edified by this show and you, um, you've you fulfilled your commitments to your local church and to your family uh, and your finances have a little bit of bandwidth and you'd like to hop on board and help us with this, making sure we've got equipment that works, that our download speeds are decent, all of that stuff that it takes to run a podcast, you can again go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. And uh, you're not going to get any special perks. We've we've been pretty uh, intentional and committed to making sure that everything that we produce for the show is available to everyone free of charge. But we can only do that because there are people who have um, voluntarily supported the show, even though they're not getting anything extra for it. So if you'd like to help make sure that that keeps going the way it is, uh, then again, you can go to patreon.com slash reform brotherhood. I love it. Make it happen, loved ones. If you've been on the fence since that, I just keep hearing them talk about this and I just tune it out. Don't let it be this time. Uh, let him who has ears hear. If <laughs> if today you hear the voice of Tony saying to you, go out to <laughs> t.me backslash reform brotherhood. Do not forsake his voice, but instead go spy it out and see what it's like. Wow. <laughs> wow. But listen, if you're going to let me make a segue, on this episode, I'm just going to take all the segues, but I'm with you, Tony. We got lots more armor to talk about, and I hope that people, if they're sensing that, like, why well, you guys just keep saying, like, this is like putting on Christ. Uh, yes, and yeah. good. Um, but again, I would say, I would submit to everybody, what an amazing thing that through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul is saying, but let me tell you what it's like to put on Christ. You might think it's too simple or you might think it's too nebulous or you might have no conception at all. And so instead, let me tell you what it's like. And so I love that we can just like kind of marinate, I don't know, meditate on like these like individual pieces and try to understand what they are. It's like a great joy to seek these things out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, I'm excited for next week. I'm excited to keep working through the series. I'm excited to hear what God has got uh, to teach us and to teach this community of people that's built up around this podcast. And until next week, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if 